Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who persecute are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if you look at this eight, these eight different uh, characteristics here, what's called the Beatitudes, um, you'll see Jesus begins his his this sermon off with teaching what a believer truly looks like. I think there's the, I absolutely no there's so many parallels between the time that Jesus walked the earth and where we are today because there was so much confusion then about what a believer was. Religion had totally ruined what God intended and uh, they had taken and made it something that wasn't intended to be and I believe in the United States of America especially that the same exact thing has happened that we have religious people and religion has totally uh, janked up what God intended for us to understand from his word and what it means to be uh, a true Christian so many people think today that that uh, that God's basically uh angry at everybody and that you got to do a bunch of good things to try to appease an angry God and if you don't you're going to end up in hell and and when you mess up that you know that he's ready to thump you on the head and, and come down on you and that's totally against God's word there is no religious action that you can take that causes you to be right in the sight of God we have this idea because it started back in the 80s that just because you come to a church come down the aisle pray with the preacher that you're good to go and and that you get out of hell free card. Now, hopefully that's nobody I'm talking to this morning, but as a whole, that's what the United States of America preaches, and that's what people believe. And we wonder why we say we're a country with, you know, who's now I think we're like 60% Christian, but you don't see the power of God like you've seen in the Bible, and you don't see people living lives like the Bible describes. Yet when you talk to most people, they say, oh, yeah, I'm a believer, and I'm... I'm and so Jesus comes along, and so what I want you to do this morning, not that I want to cause anybody doubt, I want to cause you confirmation. That's what I want to do. Because you look at God's Word, and, and, and here's what I would say. Sometimes you have to, if you're going to be honest for yourself, because here's the God's honest truth. You can fool everybody. You, know, you, can, you can fool your, your family, you can fool your church family, you can fool your husband or wife. I'm a Christian, I'm good to go, I'm ready to die. But, but here's the thing, when you die, it's just you, Okay? And, 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 and what good was it to fool everybody, and sometimes we even want to fool ourselves, to fool everybody and stand before the Lord lost, not having ever been born again, even though you professed it your whole life and you went to church and you did all this religious stuff. But in your heart, when you look at God's word, that's why I say sometimes you got to set aside experiences and, and your feelings and that kind of stuff and go, I want to know. This is, this is the one who's going to judge us speaking here in this, in this chapter. I want to know what he says and what he's looking for as what a true born again believer looks like. Now, <clears throat> these are not characteristics of a, uh, of a person that you have to try to live out and cause somehow in your own self where you go, I need to show mercy to make sure I'm a Christian. I need to seek after righteousness. These are things that you do because you're a believer. They don't cause you to be a believer. It's because you are a believer that you see these things in your life. And it, basically what this is, this is 
the attributes of a, a maturing believer with a starting point and an ending point where God's working in and through your life to cause you to be Christ-like. If you're here today and say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not Christ-like, I think, come on, man, let's... Let's, let's judge ourselves. I don't need nobody else to judge me. I want to look at God's word and I want to say, do I have what Jesus here specifically points out that I need to have uh, that confirms that I am his child? Now, there are seven Beatitudes that deal with character. Let me cover this real quick. Seven Beatitudes that deal with the character of a believer. And then the eighth one is the world's response to a believer. When you mature as a believer, you're going to see each one of these attributes in your life. These are things you should absolutely be able to look at your life, especially if you say that you've been saved for a while, that you ought to be able to look at and go, I, you know what, I, I, I do have meekness. Not that we're just, you know, Johnny Meek all the time, all right? But there is a meekness in me, and there is a hunger and a desire for righteousness in me, and, and, and you know, you know, I, I do show mercy because I've been shown mercy. And But when you come to the place of maturity, you, you see where it says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, it's, just not, it's not just talking about Facebooking, okay? It's talking about people who attack you because they see Christ in you. You have matured as a believer to the point where that, that you're, you're a whole lot like Jesus, okay? And that the world sees that, and Jesus himself said, don't, don't marvel, don't wonder if the world hates you. They don't hate you. They hate me in you. And so if you say, oh, you know, I don't know if I'm a mature believer or not, you would have to look at it and go, just how much stuff is said about me or how, how often am I attacked because of Christ in me? Most of us probably don't experience that too much if we're honest. Now, second thing is, and you might, you, you know what, people might say all kinds of stuff to you, and if you do, be happy about it because you're just like Jesus, all right? But there's also two things I want to point out here that, that mentions the kingdom. In verse 3 it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then when you look in verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when I first studied this, I thought, man, what exactly does that mean? Jesus is pointing out here that... That at the beginning point, okay, in verse 3, when a person is saved, and that's what this is talking about here, that at that point in time, a specific change takes place in your, in your present, but also in your future. You at that moment that you trust Christ as your Savior, you are given an inheritance. An inheritance is not something that you yourself work for. It's something that either your parents or your grandparents or, you know, they work their whole life, they save, and at the point of their death, you are the beneficiary of that, and you are given an inheritance at that time, which is fully yours, okay? You didn't do anything to attain it. When Christ came, he lived a life for us, represented us, and at the moment of his death, okay, his burial and resurrection, we were offered an inheritance by grace and mercy. Not something that you work to attain, try to be good enough to attain. You know, hopefully you're not waiting to get to stand before the Lord to find out if you got it. Because if you're thinking that, you, you got some way misthinking going on. An inheritance was given you at the moment that you trust Christ. We're going to slow down just a little bit this morning because I want you to see God's word and not hear my mouth. Look in Ephesians chapter 1. I think a lot of times true believers struggle with their relationship with the Lord and and wonder if they really got what the Bible says they got and they listen to preachers and they never look at God's word when it's God's word that confirms you, not a preacher, okay? So when you look in Ephesians chapter 1, 
Okay, in verse 13, if you're there, you'll say amen, so I know. All right, six of you look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. It says, in him, in Christ, you also trusted. After what? After that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This, this shows you the process, for lack of words, of how a person is saved. They heard the word of truth. You hear the gospel that Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. And whom also, having believed, okay, at the point that you trusted in that right there. You didn't, you're not trusting in your baptism. You're not trusting in your, in your church membership, in your, in your raising, in your background. You're not trusting in any of those things, but you're trusting in one thing alone, that Christ loved you, died for you, was buried in your place, and rose again, and offers you grace. At that point that you believe and trusted in that, what happened? It says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is what? The guarantee. The guarantee of our inheritance, which is eternal life, okay? Until when? Until you mess up, till you sin, until you, till you do something, till you have a bad thought, till you, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And what that means is, until the time that Christ returns, he's already bought you, and you are fully redeemed, body, soul, and spirit, in the presence of God. You're sealed until that day. There is nothing you can do, like it or not, okay? Not that I'm sitting here saying, well, you mean I can go out and sin? That always gets thrown in my face, especially. You know, I'm 100% eternal security of the believer. Once saved, always saved, period. But here's the thing, because people go, that means I can go out and live and do however I want to, and, and I can just sin, and I'm still saved, and I just go, do you want to do that? You know, because the chances are, maybe, maybe you were never saved, okay? Because if you have a heart that still goes, I love sin, and I want to be involved in darkness, and we, here's where I'm at. You know where I'm at. We all sin, we all fall, but we don't all dive. There's a difference between falling in the swimming pool and diving into the swimming pool. And, and if you're one of those people who go, I love sin, and I love darkness, and I, you know, I don't think about righteousness, I don't hunger and thirst after righteousness, oh, but I'm saved, I'm thinking, you better check and see if you really got what you think you got when you said you got it, okay? Because the Lord points out real clear here, the attributes of, of a person who is a follower of Jesus. So let's get into that. Um, oh, I didn't finish up, did I? Anyhow, you get your inheritance in verse 3, in verse uh, 10, where it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first place, the inheritance is within. The kingdom of heaven in verse 10 is talking about without, when it's manifested, when you stand before the Lord and you actually receive the, the inheritance. that make sense? All right, all right. Looking in verse three, this is where it's going to get really exciting. You're going to be all into it. All right, verse three says, "Notice if you'll notice, each one of these go totally against your natural person. None of us here want to show mercy naturally. None of us here are meek naturally. Okay, where we have power under control. None of us here are pure in heart." Naturally, we're wicked in our heart. Naturally, we want vengeance over mercy. You know, naturally, you know, we don't want to think about being poor. We want to think about being about rich and prideful and arrogant. And so when it talks about being poor in spirit, these are the reason that this identifies us as believers is because only the Spirit of God can produce this in our lives. And so when you look at these, you go, I have these attributes. I have these desires. I've seen this change in my life. Only God's Spirit can cause that in you. 
You can't cause it yourself. Your natural person hates the ways of God. You don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. So when you have that, you can, you can absolutely go, then, then I am a born again believer and I have the spirit of God within me and I'm sealed until the day of redemption. And it causes you to live and look at life very differently when you realize what you've got. You understand that? And so when you look at this, when it talks about being poor in spirit, it has nothing to do, it is no reference to outward circumstances. It's not talking about only people who are broke, you know, and don't have any money, don't have any possessions, and you give up everything. Only those people are going to heaven. This has nothing to do with that whatsoever. This is the beginning or a starting point. And when the word, the word it uses here is blessed means true happiness, okay? So Jesus is saying true happiness begins with poverty. True happiness, lasting joy, blessed living, it begins with poverty. And it's not talking about physical poverty, but it's talking about coming to the realization of our spiritual condition that I do not possess anything. I am totally bankrupt spiritually when it comes to having anything that whether it's riches or fame or righteousness or religion that can commend me to God. There are so, that's why Jesus talks about, remember when he said how hardly it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle or the opening of a gate than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? It's because oftentimes our position, our possession, our fame, those are things that Satan puts within our lives that builds up spiritual riches within us in the sense of, I don't need God. You remember in, in Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, the only church that didn't get any commendation from the Lord, and they said, we are rich and we have need of nothing. And that's what our greatest enemy in this wretched country is, is all the toys and all the, all the fame and, and the uh, reputation and the pride and the arrogance that all of the things we live for and we chase after builds up within us. And that's why God hates pride, because pride is the one thing that separates us so far from the gospel. Because here's the truth. You can't be saved until you come to this realization to go, I am and have nothing to offer to God whatsoever. You know, if you stand before the Lord and you think that you have some kind of bank account of of self-righteousness to where you're going to give God your list of why that he should let you in. You know, you know, I went to church and I was a pretty good person and I tried to help people. You know, Lord, I didn't this and I didn't that. And I hear people all the time say, you know, I didn't ever kill anybody. I never stole anything. But when you get into God's word and you let God's word do what it does, when you look at the law of God, it totally brings me to the place where I am broken before God to go, I'm wretched, I'm miserable. I'm lost, and God, I have nothing to offer you whatsoever. At that point, that's a good place to be. Because at that point, and only at that point, is when God will save a person. You will never approach God upon your own righteousness, not even a little bit of it. And you know what? Man, that goes against us. It goes, oh God, especially American people. We, we're the last people to go, huh? I'm just not. That's why grace, being saved by grace, everybody, grace is so easy. No, it's not. Being saved by grace is the most difficult thing because we're the most arrogant people. For me to go, God, you know, I'm a wretch. I have, you're, you're saying I have no righteousness. I have no goodness in me. You know, I don't have anything and that I am deserving of hell. Just like, you know, the person who's out in the penitentiary today for killing 50 people and you're telling me, a pastor, that I have nothing good in me and God's answer will be, that's exactly what I'm telling you. 
In God's sight, compared to the holiness of God, I have, I'm spiritually bankrupt, poor as poor can be, and I have nothing to offer God. And until a person comes to that place, they can't be saved. And the thing is, the thing is, all of the things that we have that we, we let build up in our flesh, you know, and we'll, We'll try to just, we'll have, we have a bank account of self-justification. We look at other people and go, I'm not as bad as that person. I haven't done what Greg Melendez has done in his life and, and that kind of stuff. And, 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 you know, we'll, we'll go through our, our list. You know, I was raised in a Christian home and I've always believed. No, you haven't. No, you sure haven't. You might have always heard and known of the gospel, but you have to come to that place to humble yourself. To humble yourself before God, not just to mentally believe and ascend intellectually to it, but come to the place to humble your heart before God, to go, God, I need Jesus. And without that, I have no hope. And that's why you have so many people sitting in church today that are on the membership roll. They've been baptized. They go through the motion, and they're going to die and go to hell. That's the God's honest truth. Okay, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but but here's the truth. Because what we did a little while back, a few years ago, was we we changed up the church and the gospel to fit the American life, so that we could continue to get the people in the church and to keep the money going, and you know, and and, and so the church would feel good about itself. We went, you know what? We're not going to preach on that whole repentance and sin and humility and poor in spirit. We're just going to make it easy. We're, you know, all we're going to do is you just come down, you you pray the prayer, the sinner's prayer that's not in the Bible. We're going to shake your hand, put you on the roll, and you know what? I look good. Church looks good. We look good to the public. And we can say we're Christians with a 50% membership that's going to die and go to hell. Like they never walked into a church before in their life. And that's a scary thought. Ain't it? All right. I want you to think about some of these, some of these scriptures. I just gave you one. Where Jesus said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm, I'm going to cut my message off, so don't worry about your time. I'm not going to cover the whole thing today. But when he said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you don't leave with anything else today, I want you to leave with the absolute knowledge of what it takes for you to go to heaven when you die. Okay? Remember the rich dude Jesus was talking to there? and He had plenty, and he came to the Lord, and he said, you know... Uh, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the law on your father and mother. You know, do not covet, do this and that, blah, blah, blah. And, and he said, all of these things, he, is self, he had such a bank account of self-righteousness. All of these things I have observed since my youth. And Jesus said, yet you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have. Take up your cross and follow me, and you'll have riches in heaven. And it said that the man walked away. He couldn't do that. You know why? Why? Say, why did Jesus do that? Because he was revealing the man's heart to him that his love was not for God, but that his love was for his possessions and his pridefulness and his arrogance. And until he come to place to let those things go, he could never inherit eternal life. And then Jesus looks at the, the disciples and he said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man in the kingdom of heaven. It's not talking about a sewing needle, okay? It is talking about in that day, the eye of the needle was the opening into the city gates where you would enter into the gate, okay? In order for a camel to come through that gate, he would first have to unload the load that he was bearing 
he would have to get down and crawl through the gate and get back up and go into the city. And Jesus is painting a picture of a, a person who almost themselves, we unload what we're carrying at the foot of the cross and we enter into a relationship with God. Very difficult, but it shows a picture of the absolute necessity for humility, okay? And then you see the church, like I said, in Laodicea that said, we are rich, we have need of nothing. And Jesus said, don't you see that you're poor, blind, miserable, and naked? You're judging yourself by your outward circumstances rather than dealing with the truth of your heart. And until we come to the place where we put aside our outward circumstances, and here's the thing. There's a lot of people, and I hear it said all the time, man, you just got to hit rock bottom. You just got to lose everything. That doesn't mean that your heart's prepared to be saved. Understand, just because you you lose everything and, and you lose your family and you lose your job and you come and you fall on physically hard times doesn't mean that my heart's ready to receive Jesus. Sometimes it just means I want out of my circumstances. And so many people come to that place in their life and then they, they're broken and they call upon the Lord. They're not calling upon the Lord because of their sin, because of, they want to follow Jesus, because they want righteousness. They're just calling on the Lord because they're like, I need a job. I need my riches, my true life, what I really love back. And once I get that back, I'm out of here. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And then remember the parable of the sower? Where Jesus gives the four type of seeds. And one of the things he said, he said, the seed that fell among thorns is when, when you sow the seed of the gospel and the thorns choke out. He said, it's the riches of the world. The thorns represent the riches of the world that choke out the work of the gospel in your life. And these are the temporary things. Okay. These are the temporary counterfeits that Satan brings into our life in order to do what? To choke out the word of God in your life. You know, think about this. When you get married, if you, if you, if you, if you've been married, or you are married, or, or hopefully you'll listen to this before you get married. Listen to me. America tells you on that junky TV that if you have a big house and a big car and a great career and, you know, this great name of fame and all this stuff, that you'll have this glorious, happy family that always gets along and they travel the world together and everything works out. And that is the biggest baloney you'll ever buy into in your life. Yet we buy into it because we live like that. We think that if we have all of those things, and I'm going to be honest with you, all of those things usually are the things that cause you all of the problems in your marriage. And until you recognize that, those things will never produce life, it will never produce a good marriage, and it will never produce a happy home, absolutely. Marriage is built upon the things from within, where you have true love for each other, where you have peace, where you have contentment, and you have a hope in your life, and in your home, and in your marriage. And here's the thing, if you have riches, the Bible says, do not set your heart upon them, for they shall soon fly away. And it's just like the Apostle Paul said, you know, I've learned to be rich, and I've learned to be poor. And I've learned that whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. But here's the thing. Me and my wife can be rich. Me and my wife can be poor. I don't know about the rich. We haven't tried that yet. But anyhow, if we was rich or if we were poor, because we're not poor either. We're right there where God takes care of everything that we have need of. But here's the thing. Either way, it's not going to change my relationship to her whatsoever or my relationship to our kids. Because I've been poor, okay? And I've been where I've done better, okay? And either way, that's not going to influence because that's not what our marriage and our family is built upon whatsoever. And so many people try to build their marriage and their family upon outward circumstances and thinking that somehow you can possibly attain something that's going to produce love and peace 
and, and, and contentment and hope and purpose and happiness is the same way of thinking that you can somehow produce something that in your own means that's going to produce eternal life, contentment with God, you know, commend you to God and, and a home in heaven. It's not possible. It's not going to happen because it has to be a transformation of the heart. Are y'all with me this morning? I know this is more teaching than it is preaching, but I want you to get the truth, okay? Before you can be rich, you have to become poor. Look at the second thing. This is the last thing I'm going to give you. Verse 4, we're going to stop at verse 4. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, okay? What this is is a combination of intellect and emotion. You can't separate the two. The first one, when you become poor in spirit, you come to the knowledge according to God's word, not according to a preacher. Okay, But according to God's word, when you look at God's word, you come to the knowledge. All you do is look at one verse, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not anybody. Nobody's right with God in their own means. When I come to that realization, okay, and at the point that I turn to God and trust in what Jesus has done for me, for my salvation and my righteousness, okay, it is the goodness of God that, that the Spirit of God works, and this is talking about repentance here in your life, you mourn, it's because you realize what sin is, what it has cost you, what it is costing you, and yet you see God in His mercy and His grace who forgives you when He shouldn't. By all rights, he shouldn't. What, what in me caused God to give his son to suffer a horrendous death on a cross so that a wretched, wicked, vile sinner who hated God? God didn't do it because I'm a preacher. God did it because I was a wretched man and that I needed a savior. And what caused that? What did I do? To, I did absolutely nothing. I hated God. If I would have been there, I would have spit in the face of Jesus that day. I would have cursed him on the cross, and you would have too. Because our lives have done it up until the point that we come to Christ. And yet at the moment that the realization of the truth sets into your intellect, and you go, this is who I am, and this is what Jesus has done for me, You're telling me God loved me even back when I lived like I live and I did all the things I did. God loved me then and he pursued me and he made a way for me that I could find mercy in his sight. If that does not break you, something is not right. And here's the thing with repentance. Repentance is not you come up here, you bow down, you cry, and then you go on about your life. Okay? Repentance is something that continues throughout the life of a believer. You want that you want the most evidence that you're a born again believer. Look at your life and see, is it a pattern of repentance? Because here's the thing where it says, blessed are those who, who are, um, blessed are those who shall mourn for they shall be comforted. That word comforted in the, in the original language means to come alongside of sin. And every one of us, even after we're saved, we still commit the acts of sin. And in that, what Satan uses sin for is whatever it takes to cause us to move away from God, to turn away from God, okay? Every one of you here this week, at some point in time, you had a moment where you turned away from God. You might have turned on your TV, you might have turned on your phone, you might have turned on Facebook, but you did something that caused you, even if it was for a moment, to turn away from God, and you stopped walking alongside. The work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is, who ain't ever going to leave you, he begins to to reveal that to you. He's trying to show you, look, this is sin, and you're moving out of the direction that's going to bring destruction in your life. 
You know, the, here's the thing. We think that God, you know, sin is so fun and it's so good and God just wants to make us miserable. If you look at sin for what it is, sin is so destructive. It is what costs you all the pain and the sorrow and the grief and the separation and the chaos and the division and the nightmares that we experience in our life. That's what sin is. And that's what God's spirit within you is going, you don't go that direction because you're moving away from the Lord. And some of us at that point in time, we choose to harden our hearts. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And the Lord's like, okay, big boy. Your kids ever tell you that? No. Your kids ever tell you when you you say, look, you know, Junior, I don't want you out here playing in a six-lane highway basketball because what's going to happen? Junior thinks it's great because he can bounce the ball. I think it's stupid because he's going to get run over. That's the truth of it. I'm not trying to be ugly and, and not let him have fun in life. I want him to come play over here where it's safe and be alongside of me. But when your kid says, you know what, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I don't know what y'all did, but I can promise you they didn't do what they wanted to do at my house. And the Lord loves you, and he's not just going to let you continue to go. The best thing for you to do is to do what? To come to a place of repentance to realize, you know what, my way and my arrogance and my pride in this sin is not what I want. Because here's what God wants. God wants to comfort you. He wants you to bring you back to that place where you're walking right beside of him, where he wants to lead you and guide you into the goodness of your life, where you have peace, where you have unity, where you're walking in joy, where you have hope, where you've got God's blessing and his favor in your life. All those good things that Jesus died to give you that Satan's saying, oh, he's trying to rob you of life and he just doesn't want you to have fun. And the Lord's like, I'm doing everything I can do to change your life and make it better. Real quick, last verse, give me Isaiah chapter 61. 